Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to the Talking Blarney podcast, where we wade through the Blarney to tell you about the real Ireland. My name is Stuart McNamara, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Rob Cross. Hello, Stu. How are you? Not too bad now on this wet and wild Saturday morning. There's a little bit of blue sky now. I mean, we had to kind of defer recording this slightly because there was very heavy rain and a bit of thunder. Um, but we think we're okay now. Uh, we, we should be okay. Yeah, we should be okay for, you know, the middle of the year, not getting a thunderstorm. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see. Well, it's a lovely, merry month of May, um, but uh, perhaps not as merry in the weather. Um, we'll start out by giving, well, I want to give us a, to do a shout out there to the Cork Aguina Brewery uh, down in Kerry. Um, very big fan of their porters. I had some of them last night, and I must say, um, highly, highly recommend Um as end is too, it reminds me of a, a crunchy bar, honeycomb and chocolate kind of taste off of it. And I wouldn't normally like that sweet of porter now, Stu, but uh, I'll tell you, they made it work. Uh, in other news, Stu, um, there was a, we have a new political leader in Northern Ireland. Uh, Edwin Poots has been elected oh. the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP. They're, they're the largest unionist party in, in Northern Ireland who want, want to, Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom, which is the, the unionist position. And he's... Um, well, he, he's, uh, he's seen as being a bit more on the conservative side of the party, Stu. Um, you know, he... he no way. He has, yeah, well, you see, um, he, he's not a fan of the old gay marriage or the abortion. And he thinks the earth is 6,000 years old. Well, I mean, you know, who could even count back further than that? Exactly. Like, well, the, the jury's out in it, Stu, I, I suppose. But uh, yeah, he's a, he's a young earth creationist and he's... Um, Definitely, definitely a bit of a change from Arlene Foster. Uh, Arlene Foster was the previous leader. She was, she's still the first minister of Northern Ireland. Uh, when she was first elected to the job, Stu, he actually said um, congratulations to her. But her first job is, of course, as a, a mother, um, daughter and wife, um, not first minister. So so there you go. Lovely fella. Great man. Great man. Sure. Clearly. We, we wish him the very and, uh, best. <laughs> I hear we got, we got some great news for our generation this week, Rob, didn't we? All the, the 20 to 30 year olds in Ireland have been told that they're the first generation who's going to be poorer than the previous generation. So that's great for us, isn't it? Oh, it is, Stu. It's someone who works in the financial field. It, it, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> isn't it just? Uh, yeah, so it, it, it's... Um... I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a weight off my shoulders not hearing that, that I have to buy a house or, you know, have any of the luxuries that previous generations had. You know, I'm just... I'm so relaxed now you know it's just I, I don't have to worry about it anymore well, Steve, at least you're not looking to buy a house in dublin in the near future that's the <laughs> unlike <laughs> some of us oh sweet jesus god help me uh let the government say what are you rob a vulture fund oh i wish I, I nearly could set up a vulture fund to come in and buy a housing estate and then i might have a house in dublin um with the government launching the affordable housing program as well Stu. Um, they said in uh, it, it's different amounts of what, what counts as affordable house in different parts of the country. So I think down in Limerick here, they said it was three hundred and fifty thousand, which is a, a lot. Uh, it's effectively saying you have to have um, a partner to get your own house. The, the rule here is um, you can get a mortgage of uh, three and a half times your salary. 
at up to 90% the value of the house. So you basically, what that means is you can get a mortgage of three and a half times your, your, you and your partner's combined salary, but you have to have 10% of the value of that in cash as a deposit. So um, in Dublin, or where, where I would be, they said an affordable house is 450,000. So Stu, um, that, uh, that's, uh, that would require substantially more than I earn. And even if taking into my, my girlfriend's wages, to be able to get the mortgage, uh, let alone get the forty-five thousand euro I would require in a deposit to buy the house. So, yeah, sure. Uh, do we not all just have that rattling around in a drawer somewhere? Um, h- hang on. Let me. What's in this drawer? Um, oh, just some work documents. No, I, I, I'm not seeing the money in the drawer, Stu. Um, it could be. Oh, it could be. It could be a fiver in one of the books. You wouldn't know, but I, I'd have to get back to you on that. Oh, they're almost there. It's just like there's five euros. Like ah, we're we're a third of the way there. <laughs> I just need the other 40. You're starting to pull yourself up by the bootstraps now. <laughs> well, Steve, it's hard to do it when you can't afford bootstraps due to crippling rents, isn't it? Oh, yes, troubles and stuff. So I think you have a secret, uniquely Irish segment for us this week, right? I do, Stu. You see, with, with, with how dysfunctional this country is, I, I thought I might talk about something that, you know, couldn't possibly be dysfunctional. I'd like to talk a little bit about our political system, if I could. Um, you know, oh. I'm a big politics nerd, as Stu knows. I, I was uh, staying up a bit late watching the um, the recent elections in the United Kingdom. They had the, the, the local elections in parts of it. They had the mayoral elections, the Welsh and mm-hmm. Scottish parliaments elected their people. And it was, it, you know, there's by-elections, but hardly, but it was very interesting. And I, I love that. But, you know, I, I was talking to a few people explaining, well, you see, they use a bunch of different voting systems for, for different elections in the UK. They um, use what's known as the top up vote for for the the mayors where you get to vote you know one and two for, for candidates and the scottish and welsh parliaments use what's known as a top-up system Stu, where you have like a local uh mp uh but you also get to vote for uh, a re a, a list of uh people in a party in, in your region that was kind of confusing a few people uh when i was explaining it to them i said well our, our system is a bit confusing as well to some people isn't it Stu? because uh, our our national parliament, we we've two parts of it. We've the Dáil and the the Shannad. So the Dáil is like our House of Representatives, our House of Commons. But uh, you know, when when you, when we go out to vote, we 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 don't just go like put the X in the box next to who we like. We go like one, two, three, four. We use proportional representation, and even beyond that, we have multiple TDs in our constituency. If you look at Limerick City, where we are now, we have four TDs, four four MPs, and they're actually all from four different parties. Um, two two from the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the right wing parties. One from Green Party, who's also in government with them, and one Sinn Fein, which is the main opposition party. And you know, if, if you look at where I live in Dublin, or lived in Dublin, I should say, um, it's a similar four TDs and four separate parties. So the, the kind of idea behind that being, if you don't want to talk to, let's say, if, if you didn't want to talk to your Green Party TD, you could go down and talk to your Sinn Fein TD, and you could talk to someone in government or out of government. So it, it's a nice little system we have. But I understand, Stu, if you're if you're American or British, and you really only know the kind of first past the post system, where whoever gets the most votes wins, and you only have one member per constituency, it might be a little bit hard to understand. But you know, it's 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 not that difficult to understand how we generally elect people in the doll, is it, Stu? Well, you know, I can write down numbers yeah. all the way up to nine or ten. Oh, yeah. So it's quite easy when you just get in there and you do the boxes because you find the Sinn Fein one if you're looking for a nice balaclava. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to uh, bankrupt the country, you go Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. Uh, Green Party, if you just want to make a yep. joke. Uh, Labour, if you're undecided, I suppose. <laughs> I, lo- I love the Labour Party. Just like, yeah, undecided. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will, I will say that 
I have a job. We're going to do a proper episode someday where we're, we're going to actually go through like the, the main political parties and talk about them a little bit. But today we're not going to do that. But today, what I wanted to talk about was the, the, the often forgotten part of, of our national parliament, of the Oireachtas is what we call it, the Shannad uh, Senate. Shannad Aaron and uh, you know, so the Shannad has 60, 60 members, senators or Shannadori in, in Irish. And, um, you know, I, I feel it doesn't get enough love as as the doll, do, do, do you think? Not particularly, but from what little I know of it, it's kind of ridiculous how people get oh, onto yeah. that one. And it doesn't get a lot of sway in the yeah, news. Yeah, well, why don't we get into it? So firstly, to kind of give a little bit of historical context, we won't go, I won't go too mad with it. Um, we basically copied the British system when we became independent, except that we eventually ended up having a president instead no. of a, a monarch. Oh, we did. So we basically says we're, we're going to use the parliamentary system, i.e. we're going to have a prime minister that has the power we call that a Taoiseach. Um, we're going to have like a popularly elected lower house, like the House of Commons, which, you know, all the members of government would be part of and whoever gets the most seats in that gets to form the government become the prime minister and they appoint the various ministers and because of the proportional system we use it's 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 generally coalition governments we've only had coalition governments since 1989 in this country and there have been ones before that though uh but when we came to the upper house we kind of said well you have the house of lords in in the united kingdom where it was the time was it was all hereditary peers who only inherited their seats because their father had one and he died. I mean, now there's only 92 of those people there, Stu, that inherit those seats and they, they elect amongst themselves. Everyone else is just appointed by the prime minister because he's one of their mates or a massive donor to the party. So much more equitable system, of course. Uh, but we kind of copied, we kind of said, Very well, fair. you know, the House of Lords doesn't have a lot of power. They're kind of there to, to kind of revise. So they look at the, the bills that are passed by the lower elected house and they say, well, that's a very good bill here. You see, I used to be a government minister uh, a couple of years back and now I'm up here and I can give you a bit of advice. And they say, maybe change this little part, have a think about it. That's the idea of how it's supposed to work anyway. It hasn't always panned out that way. So we are forming our institutions do they kind of thought why don't we have the shannon as like the, kind of the, the, the house like sober reflection you know it kind of have people in there who have um special knowledge in a couple of areas like for example agriculture and business and, and uh, <clears throat> administration so they can look at these bills passed by the properly elected politicians and be like you know what you didn't think about this aspect here why not have a have a thing about it and also you know we appoint people in there who might represent uh, small groups that aren't represented um that's the idea behind it, Stu, anyway, which, which it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds clever, but, but considering it's Ireland, I don't believe it actually went that way in the end. Unfortunately not, Stu. Um, that's not. So the Shannad, uh, which I'm going to call it the Shannad, uh, you can call it Senate as well, I would generally say Shannad. Um, it's generally it doesn't have as much power as the doll. Basically, the doll has all the power in this country, really. The Shannad is just there to kind of offer re- re- small revisions to laws but the doll can override it um, if it's a bill they just have to the Shannon says no to a bill the doll just has to wait 90 days and it can override it or 30 days if it's a money bill um, and it's set up that the government generally always have a majority but so let's say for example you want to be a senator okay let's say you, you want to get in there uh, what do you think you have to do in, in order to do that well given my very limited understanding of it I believe I have to be from or have like gotten a degree from a certain number of colleges or one of the one of a list of colleges in the country pro- co- possibly just trinity you're 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 kind of you're kind of getting there Stu. but so the first thing to do is there's 60 members of the shannon and there isn't a, there's actually several different ways you can get in there so that, that we're off to a good start so the first way and the easiest way 
uh, the Taoiseach gets to nominate 11 senators after the new Taoiseach is elected. So if you're mates with the Taoiseach, he can just appoint you straight in there. Job done. So the, the other 49 senators, the good news is they're all elected, not just appointed. He said something there about universities. Uh, so six of the senators are actually elected by university graduates. Uh, which is an interesting system, isn't it? I mean, it could be if it was fair and balanced and it was all the universities of the country, but I have a feeling it isn't. No. Um, so this is a, an idea that <laughs> was kind of popular with Britain at the time. They used to have university seats in the House of Commons in the UK. So let's say if, if you went to Oxford or Cambridge, for some reason, it's all these very old prestigious universities where most of the people went to. You could actually elect your own MP, but eventually they realized, okay, let's reform this a bit. So you were told you can only vote for your university constituency or you can only vote in your where you live. You can't do both anymore. And then they eventually abolished those in the 1950s. We used to have them in the Dáil, but we moved it to the Shannon and it's still going as of 2021. Um, So, Stu, there are six of these senators are elected by graduates of universities. Um. Three are elected by the Dublin University, which uh, that, that name, you've been to Dublin University before, Steve, have you? I've been to a Dublin University before, well, you see, but not one with the name Dublin University. See, it, it's odd, isn't it? People don't seem to know the name, but you see, at Dublin University, the idea was it would have constituent colleges. And one of those colleges, as it turns out, the only one is called Trinity College. So if you're go to if you're a graduate of Trinity, like for example my girlfriend, uh, you get to have a vote to elect three senators. So there you go. Uh, so one single college, which has always been associated with a bit of elitism back in the day, gets to elect three entire senators. Do I mean it makes sense? They're the smartest people in the country. Of course. But what about the other three senators that are elected by graduates do? Well, they are for, to be elected by graduates at the National University of Ireland, which is, you know, a lot of the other ones at UCD, University College Dublin, uh, National University uh, Galway, NUIG, uh, Maynooth, UCC down in Cork. Um, so if you're a graduate from one of them, Stu, you, you get to uh, vote. So, I mean, Stu, I actually don't have a degree, which some people here might know. I dropped out of college and I'm going back to it now. But uh, you, you graduated, didn't you? You have a degree. So I presume you must have voted in this before. I don't believe that my university is part of this program. You're right, Stu. The University of Limerick, where we went, uh, as, same with uh, Dublin City University, DCU, uh, aren't included in this. So even though you graduate and have a degree, if you come to UL or use DCU and graduate, you don't get to vote in the Shannon because you don't, didn't go to the right university. The same way if you went to an Institute of Technology in this country, uh, unfortunately, even if you have a degree from there, you don't get a Shannon vote either. But don't worry, Stu. They passed a you re- can't let people who learned trades vote. Oh, no. But don't worry, Stu. They passed a referendum in 1979 to extend the franchise to all graduates. They're just waiting for the legislation to be passed any day now. Uh, I see. They're waiting those 90 days, but they forgot about it. Uh, uh, they, they must have. I mean, I, or maybe they passed it and didn't tell anyone. But anyway, I'm sure you'll get your Shannon vote there. But OK, Stu, we'll, we'll have to go in another way. Thankfully, Stu, the other 43 senators are also elected. Um, so that's uh, we, we have a chance here. Uh-huh. So this is where it gets what I like to say ridiculously convoluted. Um, this is they have different um panels you can get elected on then Stu they're called vocational panels the idea being that someone who uh, gets on one of these panels would have specialist knowledge in that area and can then help so they include the administrative panel which is kind of public administration and people like from charities that kind of thing there's a culture and educational panel which is kind of you know, your your poets and all that and people who might know a bit about education there's the agriculture one a lot of farmers in this country 
There's also the industry and commercial panel, which is, you know, think about factory workers, architects, engineers, and then find there's 11 seats on the labor panel, which is, you know, generally your, your trade unions, that kind of thing. Um, so the idea behind it is you, you first do, you have to get a nomination. So you can either get nominated by a group of um, TDs from a political party, or you can get an outside nomination. So let's say if there is a union you're involved in uh, could nominate you to the labor panel, for example. So, and, and you're going to run for... Uh, I'm trying to see what what panel suits you best do with your with your background in applied physics. Um, I, I I think I'm going to go with the uh, indus, industrial and commercial panel because I suppose you you do sort of work in a um you know, you know a technological kind of uh, manufacturing environment. Would that be would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's about so it. So you're going to run for that panel then. Um, and you, you, but uh, you're probably asking uh, who votes for these panels. Um, so it's not university graduates. Um, who do you think votes for this? Do or do you know <laughs> probably like either the Shannon or, or TDs or something you're, you're close enough to it so uh, it's actually politicians vote for this if you're a county councillor you get a vote on every panel so you, you would be let's say you get elected to Limerick City and County Council you would be given out a ballot when the election was coming around which is 90 days after the Dáil election to vote have a vote on each panel um but you're probably thinking, Stu, now I'm sure if I was elected a county councillor and I, for example, did my degree in Trinity, I have to pick one or the other, wouldn't I? No. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're in that circumstance, you get a vote in the Trinity panel and you also get votes for all the, the other panels. And you're probably asking, Stu, but what if, and this is a real scenario that actually happened, by the way, what if I did my undergrad in Trinity, uh, graduated, and then I went to UCD, did a master's there and graduated? Would I get votes to the university panels? Yes, yes, you would. And what if I then went and got elected to a county council? Uh, would I get votes on the two university panels and all the administrative panels? Oh, yeah, you would. Nope, no problem. So some people can have up to six votes and us, we have zero. So if if you can imagine, um, yes, so you can imagine if, if you did your undergrad in Trinity, then did your master's in UCD, graduated from both and then became a county councillor. Uh, you'd have six votes then. You'd have a vote in every panel and then the two university panels separately. And yes, this has happened before. So um, that's a bit fair, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds completely fine on all sides. Because uh, we don't have any votes, but some people have loads. Um, but who else is electing it? Well, it's all county councillors get the ballots due. It's also the TDs who've just been elected. The Shannon election happens 90 days after the uh, the Dáil is elected. And also the outgoing senators. So in the last Shannon, uh, overlap slightly with the new Dáil, uh, so they get to elect as well their own replacements or, as often happens, themselves. Shocker. Shocking. Yeah, so... I suppose we're going too crazy here, Stu. That's how the lovely Shannon works. Now, I'm simplifying a lot of that there. Um, I'm even leaving out the part where a councillor, if you're a councillor, you actually don't get one vote in each panel. You get a thousand votes. Um, And also the whole inside and outside nominations and the ridiculous voting system it uses. But, you know, we'll save that for another day. But, uh, Stu, I think your your dreams of being a senator might not just be happening just yet. But uh, don't worry. We might be able to get you elected somewhere else. And we'll talk about that another day. Oh, right. Lucky for me. So <laughs> uh, I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll jump into the main report for the episode, which I've kept. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Secret up until now. So to start off... Uh, I'll be talking about a man, okay. uh, a very controversial man, oh, Jesus. Um, and it's kind of it's something that popped into my head in the last while because you know he's seen quite well, but there's a, a bit of a dark history there. Oh God! And you know, with some of the things in the news, so we'll be talking a little bit about Winston Churchill <laughs> and specifically <laughs> some of the crimes of Winston Churchill, as I think I might call the episode. So, like you know, I think the past week. We saw uh, the UK Parliament are like thinking of what is it? There'll be no retribution for veterans of Northern Ireland. There were no prosecutions, I should say. And then I remember before that, uh, was it when Joe Biden had entered the White House? He like took out a bust of Winston Churchill that had been gifted to the American president at some point. They were like, why is he taking Winston Churchill out? What's his problem with Winston Churchill? I was gonna, it's, it's worth noting that the Arthishuk and the British Prime Minister had a meeting uh, yesterday over in Chequers, the Prime Minister's country estate, because that's another perk of the job. And uh, the statement was released afterwards, and Barris has said they're not planning on giving immunity to soldiers in the north at the moment, but he's already had... Uh, a very outspoken backbencher used to be a soldier resign over it. So it's it's not out of the water yet because there was a thing of the, the Bally Murphy murders in Northern Ireland uh, back uh, about 50 years ago that they were all un- unlawfully killed and they, they weren't in the IRA. They were unarmed civilians that were murdered by the British, including several that were shot in the back while they were running away. So, you know, um, it's probably got nothing to do with the fact that the captain who was in charge of the parachute regiment that day is now the head of the army, Sir Mike Jackson. So that's um, probably probably a complete coincidence. Too. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's why I thought it would be a good thing to talk about him today. And now, obviously, this is going to be a little bit more one-sided, but like we're not going to be able to take away from all of the, the great things that he did during the wars, you know, basically stopping uh, Nazis and Hitler and all of that. Still... He could do good things, but he could do bad things. So that's kind of where we're coming at. He did a lot of good, but there's some bad that you should probably know about too, which I don't think a lot of people know, especially over in the Western world, considering it was mostly kind of uh, Eastern side of the planet that he did a lot of his troubling things. Well, and Ireland as well. Let's not let's not forget that. Um, yeah, of course. But I also have a, there's a picture I have up in my wall that you've seen, Stu, of um, 
uh, the ship my great-grandfather was on in the Royal Navy in the First World War, uh, the HMS Ocean being sunk off the Dardanelles, which was the Gallipoli invasion that Churchill organised, uh, really pushed for in World War I uh, in, in uh, Turkey, which was the Ottoman Empire at the time, uh, which was a complete disaster. It killed loads of people, particularly Australians. So, you know, Worth, worth also mentioning that that his, his first World War record, his first Lord of the Admiralty, wasn't exactly stellar either. So, yeah. Um, I, I, but, but, yes. I, we'll go back to what you're saying. I could do about uh, 10 other things about this, but we'll <laughs> we'll hold on to them for later. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what I get, and yep. then you can tick in any extra yeah, boxes that I've missed. Yeah. So just like a bit of a prelude, like where Ireland was around this time. So like basically the, the century before Churchill kind of got into power and everything that he did. So like you have... 1801 was actually when the Acts of Union came into effect. So that's when the United Kingdom kingdoms of Britain and Ireland became a thing. So that's really when we were brought into the, the UK banner at the time. We didn't have our own parliament any, anymore from that point. It's, it's worth saying as well. We, we So Britain was basically running everything. Exactly. They appointed a, a chief secretary to run Ireland, working with the Lord Lieutenant, who was the Queen's representative. But we didn't have any say in that anymore. Yeah, so then... We jump forward a little bit to something that I think everyone knows about 1845 to 1849. We had the Great Famine with one million dead and one million emigrated. And obviously all of that basically caused by the British, you know, stealing all our food that we did have. um, And, you know, letting us starve, building famine roads and famine walls and everything that goes along with that. And that's when, you know, there had been hundreds of them before, but 1867, we had a Fenian uprising the Irish Republican Brotherhood led an uprising against British rule. So that's kind of starting up to where Churchill kind of steps in. So Churchill himself, born Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, was born in 1874 in Oxfordshire, England, in a fucking palace, because of course he Len- was. Lenin Palace, yeah. That, that's how you yeah, pronounce uh, that. One thing that surprised me, yeah, I, was, I wasn't even <laughs> going to attempt it. But one thing that did surprise me was that he's actually half American on his mother's yep. side. I would have assumed that, you know, he's the most British man in the world, but he's actually half American. And I think like if you go back, it's actually, you know, his ancestor was like French or something. Yeah, they're they're the Spencers, which is kind of his church is like one aspect and Spencer is the other uh, are a very, very old family. Um, you might know one other one of the Spencers, too. Uh, one of Winston's, uh, I believe, grandnieces, uh, Lady Diana Spencer. I think she married into some crazy German family or something. Um can't th- can't think of her name. Oh yeah. no, no, I haven't heard about her any any time no, recently. No. They were related. Uh, the Churchills were a very famous. The reason they have Blenheim Palace is because it's the only palace that isn't royal in the UK is because they're one of his ancestors. I think he was John Churchill. I'm going to say was a military leader, and he led. I can't remember what war it was, but he was a great general, and he got the title. The I think he was made Marquis of Marlborough. Marlborough. I always find difficult to pronounce. Yeah, I have it here. He, he's the descendant of the first That's Duke it, of Marlborough. Yeah. Um. And that's it. So, like, his grandfather was the chief. He was always smoking them, them cigars. You know, he's just trying to promote the cigarette. <laughs> exactly. Uh, his grandfather was the the Duke at the time when he was born. Actually, he he was actually Lord Lieutenant in Ireland. I don't know if you have that down there. So Churchill actually spent some of his childhood living in the Phoenix Park in Dublin, in what would later be yeah. the Arison Uchtaran, our president's home. So there you go. Yeah. So 1876, Then his grandfather became the Viceroy mm-hmm. of Ireland. His family moved. He he lived there basically until he was about nine or seven when he was moved to a boarding school in England and his father really wanted him to join the military and uh, surprisingly he actually failed twice yep. to get in 
Uh, but on the third time, he succeeded in going to a military academy or whatever it was to uh, become the great leader that we all yeah. have heard of. As I, say, I, would, I would say as well, his father, who was uh, Lord Randolph Churchill, he, he was a very prominent politician as well. Uh, he was in the Liberal Party and he was a, a liberal unionist. He was very against Ireland having any form of home rule. And he actually split with um, uh, William Gladstone and the other liberals he wanted to, who were willing to give Ireland a little bit of um, authority to, to work with the Conservative Party to prevent that. So his father was very against uh, giving the Irish home rule. And that's something might be worth mentioning just because it does... It might play into his psyche a little bit later on, as I'm sure you, you'll mention. Yeah, well, he does kind of flip-flop on it he a does. bit. So, uh, as Rob mentioned, my next seg- segment, there kind of a bit about the home rule that was going on. So, basically, it was after the Fenian uprising that I, I mentioned previously, around 1870, home rule became like the main political movement for Irish nationalism. So, you know, there were loads of organizations, uh, starting with the Home Government Association campaign for home rule in the House of Commons, which... We were part of at the time because part of the UK. So they actually had three home rule bills attempted. Twice it failed in 1886 and then 1893. But finally, in 1914, it passed, but was immediately postponed because of World War One. It's worth saying as well, Stu, that the reason the the home rule bills were passed in all these instances was because the the Liberal Party um, at the time it was the two main parties in the UK were the Liberals and the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is the same as the one that's in government now. The Liberals became the Liberal Democrats much later on. Um, they didn't have a majority in the House of Commons, so the Irish Nationalists, the Home Rule Party, had the balance. So they basically went over to Mr. Gladstone and said, "We'll make you Prime Minister and give you a majority to pass through your bills as long as you give us Home Rule." And Gladstone said, "Fine." So. The House of Commons passed home rule bills twice, but it was the House of Lords, which uh, disproportionately had a load of people, Stu, that had large houses and lots of land in Ireland, uh, vetoed it twice. It was only after, um, in 1911, uh, David Lloyd George, who I presume will come up later again, uh, was Chancellor. He passed the People's Budget, which was the first one to introduce like old age pensions and uh, kind of precursor things to the NHS, like national insurance. Uh, the House of Lords blocked that, so they ended up um, having another election about it and threatened to make a load of new peers. The king was rather shocked by this. And um, they actually took they took away the power of the House of Lords to block bills um, for, for very long. And they used that to pass the budget, but they also used it then a couple of years later to pass the Home Rule Bill the third time. So that's just a, a, a bit of an important context as well about why it happened. Um but but, yeah. but but the point is there were a lot of people yeah, who were I mean, happy about it. Yeah, I'll get, get to that in a second. But like one of the things, you know, trying to talk about the psychology of Churchill and where he stood, yeah. it, it's really hard to nail him down. I mean, looking through it, he, like I have a quote here from him from 1904, and he says, I remain of the opinion that a separate parliament for Ireland would be dangerous and impractical. But then when, you know, home rule was kind of being uh, debated for the third time, he actually supported it. But he was kind of he was against the partition of Ireland, but suggested it be part of like a federal UK rather yeah. than whatever. Like it, you know, it, it's it's hard to kind of get into really where he where he stood on his, it. His position on a lot of things changed too, including um, giving parts of the British Empire independence later on when he was prime minister in the 1950s and um even with like his old like at the time as well the other issue was with the suffragettes votes for women 
he was very, very against that until he he changed his mind. There was a lady used to follow him around with a bell and would ring it every time he spoke when he was Home Secretary because he wouldn't uh, give votes for women, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> is that something that we could do with our politicians, just wander around with a bell? Sure, why not? Houses, houses for all. For, houses, houses, <laughs> houses for votes, more likely. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's like he, he was all for home rule at this point. But at the same time, in the middle of World War One, he was like, I think we should start conscripting the Irish. That didn't go so, well. <laughs> given with one hand, taken from the other. Uh, but yeah, the passing of the, the Home Rule Bill caused the Home Rule crisis. So the Unionists started the Ulster Volunteer Force. And of course, then the Nationals started the Irish Vol- Nationalists, yep. I should say, started the Irish Volunteers which led to the Easter Rising. We talked about this a fair bit in our our Michael Collins episode because this is when the movie starts. So if you'd like a bit of further context on this, uh, listen to that, listen to the start of that episode. Yeah, so I'll jump ahead then to when he became the Secretary of State for War and Air, which is kind of a badass metal title. Yeah. But uh, considering what he did with it, (laughs) not great. So as you said, Lloyd George promoted him. Uh, I think that was in 1918 or around then. Um, so that's kind of also when the Irish War of Independence started. So, you know, he just became Secretary of State for War, and immediately there's a war in one of the places that they own. So he yeah. jumped right I, in. I was, his title before that's due in the First World War was uh, First Lord of the Admiralty. So, I mean, that's also a pretty cool title. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. So then in December 1918 elections, uh, Republican Party Sinn Féin won a landslide victory in Ireland. And then on the 21st of January 1919, they formed a breakaway government, Dáil Éireann, and declared Irish independence. So that's kind of when everything starts really getting tough and Churchill's like, it's time to step in. So considering they had the Royal Irish Constabulary, uh, they needed some reinforcements because they didn't have enough with the giant war going on in Ireland. So he creates the good old lads, the black and tans. And the auxiliaries, of course, as well. Yeah. So... We've kind of discussed them before. If you don't know the Black and Tans, they were basically like, I think to start off, wasn't it like ex-soldiers and stuff who come back from the war, but they didn't really fit into society there. So they signed up to join and, uh, you know, they didn't have enough uniforms. So they're all wearing like part of the RIC uniform, which was a dark green kind of black looking. And then the khaki British Army uniform, which was a tan tan uniform and a black uniform. So Black and Tans kind of came from that. They had 10,000 people were recruited to the Black and Tans. So it's quite a lot. It's worth saying these these weren't technically soldiers, of course. They wore, um, same with the other name, but the auxiliaries were former officers. The Black and Tans were former kind of Bobby soldiers. The auxiliaries were the really, really ruthless ones who like, you know, burnt down cities and carried out summary executions. Not to, to offend the Black and Tans too. I'm just saying that the highly more educated officers um, <laughs> were a lot more ruthless in what they did. Like they'd be the guys that would be torturing you. Like, rip, like and I've heard some of the stories they've done. Um, but they, they weren't technically soldiers. They were, of course, uh, auxiliaries, as in auxiliary police officers. So they were special police, effectively, that were sent to help the RIC in um, in Ireland. But they were, to all intents and purposes, they were soldiers. You know, I, I, I don't see police officers with heavy machine guns in armoured cars too much. Yeah, there, there's like some conjecture about whether some of them might have actually been ex-prisoners who had been sent over. That's quite likely, I think. Um, quite likely. Yeah, so you know, you basically had a bunch of murderous psychopaths 
starting a militia in a country where they had free reign to do whatever the fuck they wanted. It's, it's worth saying as well, why didn't they just send over the... Because if they did that, then they'd be recognizing that they were going to war with another government and they didn't consider the doll and uh, like a name David Ayer, like to be rightfully the go- sorry, rightfully the government. Um, they were just like a breakaway faction, you know. So they were just terrorists. They weren't another government they were going to war with. So that was the the whole kind of thinking behind it as well. Yeah, and you know there are you know rules of engagement for war, but not so much when you're just trying to defeat a load of terrorists, I suppose. Yeah, well, they they just gotten out of quite a bitter war. People are using like gas and things like that. So I don't think they really wanted to go back to that. But when you're against like a bunch of effective civilians, yeah, Yeah. torture them, burn down their houses, you know, do that kind of thing. So just to kind of give you a bit of the mindset that the Black and Tans held going into it, I have a bit of a quote from a Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Smith or Smythe, I don't know, uh, in in an address to the first recruits to the Black and Tans. So it's a bit of it's a bit dark. But we'll get through it. So should the order, hands up, not be immediately obeyed, shoot and shoot with effect. If the persons approaching a patrol carry their hands in their pockets or in any way suspicious looking, shoot them down. You may you may make mistakes occasionally and innocent persons may be shot, but that cannot be helped. And you are bound to get the right parties sometime. The more you shoot, the better I will like you. And I assure you, no policeman will get into trouble for shooting any man. Hunger strikers will be allowed to die in jail. The more the merrier. Some of them have died already, and a damn bad job they were not all allowed to die. As you can see, like, it's dark stuff. They just didn't give a fuck about people. Like, the Irish were hardly even human to them at this point. They just didn't care. Yeah, it's, like, disgusting reading that, and I suppose knowing that that happened, you know, literally 100 years ago, um in in in, in literally where, where where we're talking right now in limerick it happened uh of course we had our soviet in, in response to that but that's a that's a different story for a different day um but they still use these tactics in northern ireland like, there's a thing now with the valley murphy thing they were doing this in the goddamn 70s and not just in ireland like in other parts as well where they were pulling out of their empire so it's that attitude prevailed you know what I mean, for a lot longer than they'd admit and may, may still to this day, unfortunately. Yeah, and it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it wasn't that they were expressly told by Churchill or the higher ups to do these things, but it's that they were given carte blanche to do stuff. And then if they went what you might think would be too far, there was no reprimands or anything. And so they just got away with it. And it's like, well, if I've done it this time and I'm not getting in trouble, I'm going to do it again. So, you know, they were burning down houses, you know, they'd be breaking it, they'd be knocking on doors middle of the night to check for fucking IRA members or IRB, whatever. And it just, it was horrible, horrible times. Like they, they tortured people as well. Like there's, I can't remember the exact name, but like the, there's pictures of these bodies that they beat this guy to death and like put grenades in their mouths. Um, And like the families made a dig of like putting their mutilated bodies in the front page of the paper to make a difference. And that drew condemnation from the Pope and the, the US president um, about it. And it, like, it's well, so they didn't just burn down houses. They burnt down entire towns. They, they burnt down half of Cork City and then said, oh, the Irish did it after they assassinated the, the yeah. Lord Mayor at the time. Um, they also burnt down a large part of Tralee at, down in County Kerry, which is a large town as well. So it's, 
you know, even before we get into the countless massacres that were carried out and, you know, they summary executed people. Like, this isn't like is a, a guy walking with the hands in their pocket. Like these are people who had their hands tied behind their back and had a gun put to the back of their head out in the middle of a field. Like, you know, they, they, they this was a targeted campaign against Irish people and they would arrest you if you had like Irish on a uh, name on, on your shop or something like that by being associated with Sinn Féin. You, if you spoke Irish in public, you could be arrested as well. So it was a systematic campaign against our own culture and identity, um, as the British have done for hundreds of years, as much as anything else, I think. Yeah, which, which is, you know, it, it's it's rough. And, but then he turns around then and helps to negotiate the Anglo-Irish Treaty, ending the war and establishing the Irish Free State. So you know, you, you don't know where to land with him because he's done a lot of terrible things. And in the end, he helps get us independence. Well, yeah, but that treaty was like, um, you know, the, the, the negotiations like led by Michael Collins were over there and they met like David Lloyd George, Churchill, uh, Lord Birkenhead too. And it's the whole thing where Northern Ireland had already been nominally independent with uh, Carson. Was it, sorry, was it Carson or James Craig? Sorry, I think Craig was the... Prime Minister at the time of Northern Ireland, like those get mixed up between the two of them. Um, and Lloyd George came in the last day and said to Collins, Look, I have two letters here that are going to go out to the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. One is says, Congrat, uh, good, uh, I'm putting out uh, tomorrow morning. One is says, We've reached a deal, all good. The other is like, No, couldn't reach a deal. Grave and terrible war will be taking place in Ireland from tomorrow. So you know, they completely strong iron them into taking a deal that Collins knew was unacceptable to about half the people back there because it wasn't a full republic. It wasn't a 32 county thing, you know, but that it was hard to accept. So I think, yes, Churchill did. Churchill yeah, did have a no win like, scenario. You know, Churchill, I wouldn't say he, he gave Collins the deal of the century. Like he effectively did the move, helped the moves. The, the... I know, but I think I. I... I'd read somewhere that Collins actually kind of thanked him for, you know, it would like without Churchill, it wouldn't have gone oh, I, I, the I, way I, it I, did, which I know wasn't I, perfect. I, I, I think but... that sure there, there's an aspect of it, but to, I don't think it was um, the British government would have gone back to, to properly like, okay, we've negotiated with you now we can partially recognize you as a government. So then they could literally have sent in the army, you know, like tanks and planes and everything, loads of artillery to properly root these guys out and, you know, I, I don't know if the IRA, IRB at the time would have been able to be against that. So, yeah, it's it's very contentious. Yeah. But uh, there's a few other things about him that we should talk about, not necessarily regarding Ireland, but stuff that uh, definitely fall under terrible things oh, that he's yeah. done. So one of them is that he's kind of racist, surprisingly. So I have a quote here. In 1937, he told the Palestinian Royal Committee, or the, sorry, the Palestine Royal Commission, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more widely, more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place, which is fucking insane oh yeah that's that he he, he ticked all the boxes there <laughs> like i mean i know this was a couple of years like you know not too long before hitler but that's a hitler level sentence that well, is you're talking about racial purity and all that and you know eh, like it's a bit not not good 
Um, he saw himself in Britain as being the winners in a social Darwinian hierarchy. Yeah, well, I mean, considering what he when he was an officer back, I don't, do you have a bit of, about when he was in Afghanistan, Stu? Or... Uh, no. When he was an officer back, so he, he spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And yeah, he just kind of admitted to slaughtering entire villages of people. Uh, the Pashtuns and I, I think in Afghanistan and you know being like uh, effectively saying look they were not the same race as me and they were Muslim so what are you going to do and it's like wow that's uh, that's pretty bad and that was like when he was in his early 20s yeah I mean as I said you know there's no surprise there with, with this he's not the greatest man I think I can't remember the exact quote but someone quoted as saying you know he he's basically there for the bloodshed no matter what you know he's oh, always yeah. in for the war one thing I, I even forgot to mention about um, the War of Independence, I think he was kind of trying to push for like air raids and stuff. He wanted, you know, I, oh, yeah, as I he said, was. he was, you know, the, the war and air and he, he really wanted air support in there, which would have, you know, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. We'd still be fucking British right now if they had brought in the air support. Yeah, they, well, they had a, a, for the First World War too. Well, they set up the RAF as its own thing, the Royal Air Force and... um had learned about how tactical bombing, things like that, and how, how to, you know, to do these things probably at the start of the war. It was like they were throwing like um, darts at each other on the ground and they, you'd have a fellow in the backseat with a shotgun that would shoot at the other planes. By the end of the war, they had like uh, large multi-engine bombers that could fly to like fly over um, cities and drop bombs on them. Um, so, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't have ended too well. Uh, I, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, I mean, you know, to go into another thing that he he kind of flip flopped on a little bit was poison gas. Oh yes, of course. Uh, it, it's so I have a quote from him here. I cannot understand the squeamishness about the use of gas. It was something he he wrote in a memo during his role as Minister for War and Air in 1919. It's like from what the context is, it seems that he was proposing the use of, and I'm going to try to pronounce this lacrimatory gas lacrimatory gas which is a type of tear gas not a mustard gas yep. but he was also in favor of using mustard gas against ottoman troops in world war one yep. but the you know the opposing nations were using it too so it's it, you know whether he was really pro terrible gases or just kind of the milder i don't i don't stuff, i think it, like it's hard to tear say. gas isn't exactly good either i mean you've seen some some of the use of it that we've seen recently with like the police and you know, the United States with the Black Lives Matter protest. I mean, that's pretty, people have had pretty strong reactions and have died from like if they had breathing problems. So I wouldn't say it's a, yeah, it, 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 it's not as severe as mustard gas. It's not going to burn your skin and eyes and burn down your, burn down to your lungs. But um, still, yeah, we probably, probably shouldn't be using gases like that at all, I don't think. Yeah, it's not great. Um, the last thing I have here, and if you have anything else afterwards, Rob, you can add it in is the Bengal famine. So, you know, the British, as usual, not content to have a famine just in Ireland a hundred years beforehand. But in 1943, India, then still a British possession, experienced a disastrous famine in the northeastern region of Bengal. Despite refusing to meet India's needs for wheat, he continued to insist that it exported rice to fuel the war effort. So, you know, it, it was crazy stuff. I mean, you know, what is it, the... The War Cabinet ordered the building of a stockpile of wheat for feeding yep. European civilians after they had been liberated. So 170,000 tons of Australian wheat bypassed starving India, destined not for consumption, but for storage. And I think it was about 3 million Indians died yep. 
during that famine. So it was absolutely abhorrent. I mean, I think he was quoted as saying something like, you know, oh, they're breeding like rabbits down there. That's, you know, so it's their own fault yeah. kind of thing. It, just horrible I, I stuff. I have a few Indian friends and I can assure you that from what they've said to me when we, we talked about this, that yeah, Churchill's view in India is, you know, as a, I'm not going to say everyone because you know, there's billion plus Indians, but pretty much the view that I've heard from every Indian I just talked to about this was that he's seen as a, a monster over there. Like he's not viewed positively at all. Um, it's not a dissimilar view to Ireland. And I think when British people really only think of, oh, he, he won us World War II, which is like, yeah, this was Blitz Spirit, all that. And you won the Battle of Britain, grand. But there's a lot more nuance to World War II. Was it America coming in with their atomic bombs or was it the USSR coming in with hundreds of thousands of troops with a leader who literally was like, ah, we'll just get more troops if they all get killed. <laughs> so hard to say. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's rough hearing stuff like that, especially, you know, being another country that experienced quite a lot of famine yeah. to know that Britain was just at it no matter where they were. I, I think, it's- and you know, I mean, we, we suffered a lot. I mean, you know, the 1 million dead and 1 million emigrated is a huge number. And I've always wondered what like Ireland would be like today if we still had those two million people because like our population would definitely be over ten million our population by now at the, the, before if the, we still had them and it's before just... the famine too was over eight million so I mean we haven't recovered to that yet um we don't even know if we will yeah yeah it's crazy like I mean we have a housing crisis now with you know five million yeah. people imagine if we had ten oh, or twelve Jesus, it'd be awful um I think Dublin it'd be probably urban sprawling into Meath and Kildare probably as far as Tullamore Rob the Pale would be the entire yeah, country yeah. Uh, but I suppose a few other things about Churchill I won't go into this in too much detail I'll just be like look it up for yourselves you know but uh, when he was Prime Minister in the, the, the late 1950s he, he obviously led the country into World War 2 and then 1945 they have an election um, after the he was in coalition with basically all the parties during World War 2 and the Labour Party surprisingly won uh, with Clement Attlee becoming Prime Minister and a big, big surge and people were very surprised because everyone's like, you need a Churchill, I suppose, to win the war. Um, but um, Labour won a big landslide and that's why they had like the NHS and things like that in there and it's why how India gained their independence in 1947, perhaps to do with um, a different attitude in government. But uh, uh, so he was very depressed by this, but he, he was Prime Minister again in the 1950s, uh, 1955, they, they won an election and, um, sorry, it was 1950. No, I'm wrong in saying that. Sorry, 1951. My apologies. There there was an election that uh, Churchill won and he was, you know, seems like waiting to, to hand over to Anthony Eden. It's featured in the first season of The Crown, if you're of, of that thing. But um, it's when you start to see other movements as well about parts of the British Empire kind of wanting independence and the one that I, uh, two I mentioned in particular was there was what known as the Malaya emergency uh, Malaya became Malaysia parts of it and, and Singapore and yeah just some re-executions of people there who were suspected of being communists bombing the jungle burning down large parts of it um, I, I may be incorrect in saying this is when they first started using like um defoliants like to like dropping chemicals on the the rainforest and jungle areas there to kind of destroy the the trees that you could see the rebels easier than bomb them from the air um and also the mau mau rebellion in kenya which was a british possession at the time where yeah some really barbaric shit went on and churchill was aware of it like they this is like when they were chopping off people's hands to who were suspected of being rebels like 
more summary executions and you know it, he, he definitely knew about it uh no, no questions there but uh yeah so it, it didn't exactly stop even later on in, in life and um yeah uh, there, there's there's a lot more there is what I'd say is I would advise people to look up Churchill and all the various things he was involved in and you know not just from a British perspective look into what happened in Ireland um, the Ottoman Empire and when World War One what he did in Afghanistan when he was a young soldier even his time as a journalist in South Africa during the Boer War like he wasn't directly involved in the use of concentration camps down there but he was writing about it and didn't really seem terribly phased by it I think so it's a uh, yeah, a lot there to take in, Stu. Yeah, once again, as, like as I said at, at the top, like obviously he did something great for the war, but good God, not so great in other no, areas. I, I think um, I'd go go as far as to saying he might be a monster, but no, the British will still will still love him most definitely. That, like, look, I mean, they do, but uh, like we've discussed it before, and I'm sure a lot of other people have as well. That there's there's a problem in Britain with the yeah, teaching absolutely. of history and you know you get it to an extent that there's going to be you know patriotism and you know we're the best and we we fought all the wars and we won all the wars but there is some blind spots to what they teach and that causes let's just say things like brexit where they think they can go back to an empire that's crumbled around them for the past 100 or 200 <clears throat> years which yeah. needs to be corrected um you're right there and i mean it's um it's that attitude isn't particularly helpful like how oh the eu are going to you know tremble for us it's like oh but we got our vaccines done well it's like you didn't i suppose fair play to you but you did that by cutting weird deals with companies and depriving the eu of vaccines they paid for apparently um and things like that and um yeah and like boris johnson like saying oh he admires churchill and all that and you know blitz spirit is like yeah, and then he gets like you know he's in some corrupt practices, like who's who's paying for these ten day holidays in the Caribbean, or him to have his flat done up, or you know all of all of many other things there. So it's yeah, yeah, they're you know kind of just saying, oh, look how great Churchill was. We're the Conservative Party. We're all we're all like that as well. Uh, you know, all all great Churchill spirit, Brexit, Blitz spirit. Da, 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 da. I keep saying that back and forth, and you know it's like ignore all the corruption here about us giving our mates contracts. Um, but the health minister giving his friends contracts for like things in the NHS during a pandemic or whatever. So, you know, I, I think we should, we're probably just going to end up doing an episode too, where it's just like, and now here is a list of things that the British did uh, more recently than you think that you don't know about. <laughs> Part one of 245. <laughs> like, I think one of the, you know, you can cut this if you want, but I think one of the more disgraceful things that people don't know about is the formation of the British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, which is actually the American air base in these small islands. I think they're called the Changdos Islands. I, I stand to be corrected on that. But they displaced the native population, refused to, to let them go back and even used complicated old-fashioned procedures uh, with like the royal prerogative to stop court cases from allowing them to do that. And that was including like, you know, the coalition government with the Liberal Democrats and the Tory party in the 2010s stopped them being allowed to go back to their islands to, you know, bury their dead and worship and things like that so yeah they're, they're still at it Stu um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do a story about that someday but it's uh, yeah hard hard stuff hard stuff to uh, process and talk yeah. about I mean you know 
at some point you, you, you stop getting surprised by the stuff, the, the, the shenanigans that they get themselves up to. But I think we'll leave it there. And next week we'll do something much, much happier, I hope, which will be the 1968 musical Finian's Rainbow. I'm already intrigued, Stu. I thought you were going to say we're going to review the, the film Churchill, the Hollywood years. You ever, you ever see that? <laughs> I haven't. But uh, I think that would have been quite funny for me to do. But no, this is a, a musical starring Fred Astaire and Petula, Petula Clark. So it should be a bit of fun. I would, I would say, if you've never seen Churchill After, the, the Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood years, it's uh, Christian Slater, the American actor, plays him. He's like, it's like Ch- Churchill, but like his Rambo. Um, it's an awful film. I, I've seen it. It's terrible. Like, I would say it's not even so bad. It's good. It, I think it actually is just shit. Um, it goes too far. But what anyway? Uh, yeah. Uh, speaking about Patricia Clark, if you'd like to hear Patricia Clark uh, singing with an Irish band, the Saw Doctors, she did a cover of uh, "Downtown" with them. Uh, that came out a couple of years back, which I highly recommend. So there's a there's a connection with uh, Patricia Clark in Ireland for you there, Stu, as well. <laughs> Excellent. So play us out, Rob. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Um, if you <laughs> hope you've liked today's episode of all of the the wonderful uh, dysfunctional political system we have in this country and uh, the awful things that Winston Churchill has done. <laughs> If you'd like to hear more, let us know. There's a long list of British people that we can talk about. Uh, wait till the Oliver Cromwell episode is what I say. That's going to be a, a three-parter. a three, a three parter. <laughs> it, it could come uh, very well be. But thanks for listening, guys. We do appreciate it at all. You can reach us on Twitter at BlarneyPod or email us at, at TalkingBlarneyPod at gmail.com. Uh, we're very happy to take any suggestions for any movies, TV shows, things like that. We, we, we got a great one this week from uh, CSI New York. Uh, which has a, an, an Irish uh, episode in there as well, which we're we're looking forward to taking a gander at. It, it, it definitely looks pretty shit, uh, pretty paddying up, Stu. So uh, <laughs> we'll take a look. Oh, I'm so yep. excited. So for me, it is goodbye. Sloan, and we'll see you next week. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.